Welcome to Protect Your Money with FSCS, the podcast from the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. I'm Caroline Rainbird, FSCS Chief Executive, and in this series, the fantastic FSCS team will help you understand how we can help to protect your money so you can feel confident your money is safe. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Welcome to the FSCS podcast. I'm your host, Jess Spires, and I'm Senior Content Manager at FSCS. So FSCS, which is the Financial Services Compensation Scheme, exists to protect customers of authorised financial services firms that have gone bust by paying eligible people compensation. Now, we protect lots of financial products, but not all of them. So this podcast is designed to help you understand our protection and why it's so important. And in today's episode, we're asking, do you speak SIP? Now, do not worry if you don't know what SIP is. A lot of people don't. It stands for Self-Invested Personal Pension. We'll be explaining what they are and how FSCS protection works. To help me explain it all is returning guest Emma Barrow, who's been on a couple of times before. And we also have Tim McKeegan with us today, who is our operational data expert. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Jess. It is good to be back talking about pensions, which we all know is my favourite subject. Thanks, Jess. Excited to be on my first podcast. Great. Thanks, guys. Um, And just a very quick teaser of the question we're going to be asking Tim at the end of the episode. We're all about keeping your money safe, but what was the toy that got Tim breaking open his piggy bank as a child? Okay, so we have talked about FSCS protection for various financial products in previous episodes including pensions, insurance, or financial advice. Um, And this episode, as we said, focuses on SIPs. So Emma, could you kick us off by explaining exactly what a SIP is? So that's a really good question, Jess. And actually, um, a consumer survey we ran uh, back in December 2021 showed that actually less than half of people, around 44%, knew what SIP stands for. And a SIP is a self-invested personal pension, as you mentioned, and it really is a case of it does what it says on the tin. So it is a personal pension, so not one that you would get from your employer. Um, And typically you must make your own choices on how you invest uh, the money held within it. And that's the self-invested part. Um, Although you can pay for um, an advisor, a regulated financial advisor to help manage those investments as well. Uh, And I think uh, that's the main thing that sets SIPs apart from other kind of pensions, isn't it? That they basically require a lot more work on the SIP holder's part to manage. Yeah, absolutely. That is the the self-invested part is the key part. And that is the big difference really between a SIP and other types of pension. Um, So contributions to a SIP come with tax benefits, just like other pensions do. Um, A SIP is another type of pension wrapper, which you might have heard us talk about in in the pensions episode of the podcast. So you will still get tax rebates on your contributions. And the deal is you can't access your money until retirement. So a SIP is a similar um, to other pensions in that way. You can't um, invest in a SIP and then take your money whenever you like. You are still uh, expected to invest that and keep it in there until until you retire. SIPs became really popular after pension freedoms in 2015. So again, if you listen to our previous episode, we talked quite a bit about that. But the first SIP was actually opened way back in the early 90s. So they've been around a very long time. The Financial Services Authority, which was the predecessor to the Financial Conduct Authority, they started regulating SIPs in 2007. So they've actually been a regulated product for quite a long time as well. 
as I said, SIPs are, are similar to other types of pension. They've got similarities or differences. Um, providers will charge fees. Um, and I know, I think Tim's going to talk a little bit later about fees. So th there are similar things like that uh, to other pensions. And again, another similarity when you actually get to retirement, the money or the kind of assets that you've got in your SIP, you have the same sort of choice to make with what you do with those when you actually get to retiring, whether you want to exchange those for an annuity and um, whether you want to start drawing down income by selling your investments bit by bit um, and taking lump sums. So you've got the same options at the end. Uh, the difference is during the kind of accumulation period, as they call it, as you're saving up, you've got to make a lot more uh, choice yourself than you would with the other types of pension. Okay, so Emma, you mentioned there the types of investments you can have within the wrapper of your SIP. Um, Tim, I was wondering if you could tell us what type of investment SIPs can contain. Of course, I think one of the main benefits of SIP is the fact that you've got a wide variety of products and vehicles that you can put your, your money in. What we tend to find is that different providers will offer different options or only certain, certain products within those wrappers. But that's primarily where some of the risk comes in, in terms of having this wide breadth. So when, when you manage your own SIP without any advice, technically you can put all of your eggs into one basket, which we tend to see would, would increase the risk as opposed to a normal sort of employer's pension scheme, which is invested quite widely and subsequently reduces the risk. Okay. So could you give us some examples of the kind of investments you can have in your SIP? Yeah, of course. So the, the main ones that we sort of tend to see are so investment trusts are things that sort of listed within the, the stock exchange, um, sort of similar line to that is, is company shares. What, one of the main ones we tend to see here at the scheme are ones that are involved property and land. Um, now this normally isn't residential. It's more like commercial property or real estate, um, overseas. We also see things like collective investments or commercial property. Sometimes a lot of the sort of new developments and buildings that are being built is the opportunity for a SIP to invest in there and growing that we're seeing more and more offshore funds and giving the, the ability to invest your SIP um, overseas. It's important to note that, that some investments won't qualify for the tax exemption and could result in tax penalties for the, for the SIP owner, which is always something to bear in mind when you're looking at the products and options available to you. But the SIP provider should make sure that all of the investments are HMRC permitted. Yeah, absolutely. So Emma, are SIPs a popular choice for people? So um, despite our survey showing that kind of less than half of people knew what a SIP stood for, there were actually quite a, a lot of people who had invested in a SIP. So somewhere between a quarter and a third of the people that completed our survey um, had, had done so. And interestingly, they're far more popular amongst men than women in that group of people that we surveyed. About 40% um, of men had said they'd invested in one and around 17% of women. Um, and they were also far more popular amongst younger people. So just under a half, 47% of those aged 18 to 34 had, had said that they'd invested in a SIP and only 13% of those uh, 55 to 64. Now, we don't know why that is, but, you know, younger people do tend to nowadays move jobs more frequently. They might have periods of self-employment or be in the gig economy and things like that. So um, that may be part of why younger people choose to take SIPs. So, yeah, we know a lot of people uh, are taking them out. And in 2020, which uh, estimated that UK savers had around 180 billion in SIPs. So obviously that's a huge number, but it's still 
when you look at the size of the overall pensions market, it's still, you know, it's still not not the biggest proportion, but it is a big number. And the most common reasons you see for people choosing a SIP are flexibility. So Tim mentioned lots of different investments that you can you can go for. Um, tax efficiency with your savings. So if you do have a workplace pension already or you have other pension arrangements, but you've got surplus money, some people will open a SIP so that they can save in a tax efficient way for the future. There is an assumption of higher investment returns. So you'll see a lot of chatter online. People will talk about how potentially because you're doing the investment management yourself, you will save money and uh, you, you've got more freedom to choose higher risk options. And it's not as kind of the uh, people who are fans of SIPs will will look at other pensions and be like, OK, that's possibly safer, but the return isn't, you know, isn't going to be as great or whatever. So there is an assumption that they will, uh, among some people, that they will perform better. We've also seen some headlines in the news about certain investments in SIPs going badly wrong. Um, I kind of want to mention that we don't want to demonise SIPs or make them out like they're some awful thing. Um, often these issues are where the investment has failed and investments aren't a no-risk game. There is always risk involved in these investments and failure can happen. Um, but typically that's what that's what the, when you see it in the headlines, that's what you're looking at is where a particular investment opportunity has gone wrong rather than the whole SIP as a whole has gone wrong. And, you know, so you, that's the risk you take when you're choosing your own investments, right? Sometimes things might not go to plan. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think our survey revealed some quite interesting reasons why people chose SIPs, didn't it? Yeah. So as I've just mentioned, kind of people talk about flexibility and that being that being a reason to use that mechanism as a, of a SIP but actually when you look at why people made the start and and kind of took out their first SIP around a quarter said that they'd chosen a SIP because of something they just read online or the recommendation of a friend so it does seem that kind of word of mouth uh, really kind of encourages people to, to look at this option um, you'll see them discussed a lot online uh, especially when people are like self-employed or working on short contracts and they're asking other peers and people around what should I do for pension a lot of people will suggest a SIP because they're very flexible in terms of what you pay in and how much so that if you are self-employed and you're taking breaks and you're not earning all of the time or your income's flexible it, it is very easy in a SIP to change the amount you contribute um it, it, obviously all the products are different but it, it's easier than kind of a standard scheme where you're paying a certain percentage every month all of the time you'll often see people recommending them to each other if people are looking at guidance on consolidating pensions. So if they've got a number of small pots already held somewhere else, perhaps in old workplace pensions where they might have only worked for an employer for a small amount of time, and um, people will often suggest basically bunging them all in a SIP. <laughs> so taking all those small pots that you might have and putting them in a SIP. Another factor that sometimes influences people's decisions is retirement age. So, um, some products, especially if you've had a product for a while, might have a, uh, a protected retirement age and you might be able to access that product at 55, whereas um, the age of you being able to access your pension is increasing uh, to 57, I think it is in 2028. And then uh, who knows after that, but likely to go higher in my lifetime at least. Yeah, thanks, Em. Um, so if we start to think about how FSCS can help regarding SIPs, Tim, could you tell us a little bit more about where FSCS comes in regarding SIPs and how we can help if someone comes to us with a claim for a SIP? Now, I think I'm right in saying that we can broadly split our claims into two categories. So that's claims against SIP providers and claims against SIP advisors. 
That's right, Jess. Yeah, but broadly, that's sort of how we would split the two types of claims. Um, I think it's important to say, you know, our claims are currently capped at a maximum of £85,000 in compensation. So that's for firms where they've failed after April 2019. If it was before then, it's capped at £50,000. But I think on those two categories, let's start with the, the SIP advisor claims. So when we talk about SIP advisors here, what we're sort of talking about is regulated independent financial advisors or IFAs. Um, and these are people that will have given you advice about the SIP. But some examples of when we can pay compensation um, would include basically when you weren't made aware of the risks that were involved in the investment product that you were going in, tends to be what we, what we would see there. So I think on the example that Emma Gave, there are lots of options available and you are well within your right to invest your money in a high risk investment. But we want to make sure that you are fully aware of that at the time. Claims against that failed regulated advisor would ultimately tend to lead to that negligent advice um, that was given to invest in that particular SIP. I just wanted to give a fairly common example of a customer who I'll call Miss Smith. Now she worked as a transport manager earning about £25,000 a year and pay it into a private pension fund, which was valued at £27,500. Now, Miss Smith at the time was in her mid-40s um, and was beginning to think about her retirement and had the intention of, of retiring at the age of 65. What we tend to see here is that Miss Smith was approached by an IFA in 2016, and it was recommended to her that she transferred her private pension um, to invest in, in an investment called the Resort Group Bonds but to do that within, within a SIP wrapper. Now this investment was a group that held commercial property. Um, I think the key bit was it was development property. It hadn't been built at the time, but their main business was holding hotels on the island of Cape Verde. Um, so this is what we would sort of classify as a non-standard investment. The actual investment that Miss Smith purchased was sort of four part ownership properties in Cape Verde and was promised as sort of Emma alluded to earlier, very high rates of returns. I think one thing we notice, these non-standard investments, whilst available to everyone, um, are unlikely to be suitable for the majority of retail customers, um, given the high risks that are involved, particularly if you're transferring your sort of sole pension pot. In this case, when we assessed this claim in 2021, these four part ownership properties were deemed to have no value and due to the investment not being suitable to the customer, we deemed the advice was unsuitable and upheld the claim and we were able to compensate the customer to put them back in the position that they would have been. We can also pay claims against advisors when people have been given negligent advice to transfer investments within a SIP to a new SIP provider. Great. Thanks, Tim. Um, so that's um, sort of in a nutshell how we can um, pay claims against SIP advisors. So what about claims against failed SIP providers? How, how are they different? FSCS may be able to pay compensation for a claim against a failed SIP provider for a failure in their due diligence. An example would be if a SIP provider carried out due diligence on the non-standard investments it accepted into the SIP, but failed to tell the customer about any risks that their due diligence uncovered. And subsequently, the customer wouldn't have gone ahead and made the investment if the SIP provider had told them about the risks that they'd become aware of. In many of the SIP-related claims we see, the investments held within the SIP aren't regulated. So on a standalone basis, there are investments which wouldn't qualify for FSCS protection. 
because we can only help with regulated investments. But in these scenarios, we are able to look at them because of the SIP wrapper that the investments themselves sit within. Absolutely. Um, and all of the information that you need is on our website. If you want to go and have a read of that in your own time, um, that's just www.fscs.org.uk. So if we're talking all about SIPs, of course, I'd be interested to hear if either of you have SIPs. Um, Emma, do you want to go first? Yeah, no worries, Jess. Um, so I actually have three pensions at the moment, none are SIPs. So I've got an old workplace pension, which I've kept um, is from a previous employer because it has a protected retirement age of 55. And as much as I bang on about this, I want to retire 50, 55, something like that. So I'm really happy to keep that because of that protected retirement age. Um, my second pension is my current workplace pension, so the one that FSCS uh, opened for me when I joined joined the scheme a few years ago. And um, both of those are DC defined contribution schemes. You know, I contributed in my old employer, and I'm not making contributions to that one anymore. It's just kind of keeping growing with the market, and I still obviously contribute to my FSCS one. I do have a third pension. And it is a personal pension, it's just not a SIP. So I opened that when I had a period of self-employment um, and I actually still contribute to that most months. So um, when I get to the end of the month, I've got any saving, you know, any money left that I want to save, I often will put that in my personal pension. Um, and I do like that, although it's not a SIP, it is still flexible in terms of contributions. I don't have to contribute every month, um, but I'm getting that tax benefit. I'm getting that, uh, that savings benefit, which, which is important to me. The reason I've not chosen a SIP is not because I don't, um, I'm not against SIPs. I don't uh, think inherently they're a bad product, but I, I just don't feel like I have the time needed to research the investments properly myself. Um, and I don't want to pay for financial advice. That's just a choice for me. It's not something that at the t at now, at the moment, at the age that I am, I'm, I'm still in my 30s. I don't feel like I need it right now. So I'm more comfortable having that personal pension where it is personal. I can be flexible on my contributions, but there is a fund manager there in the background managing that for me, very similar to my workplace pension. So I, I just don't feel like I personally have the time and energy um, to be worrying about the investments myself. That's really interesting. So you don't have a SIP, but it's like a conscious choice. You've chosen, you know, you feel like your other patients are enough and you don't feel like a SIP is for you. Yeah, I did definitely consciously choose. So I did, I did look at a SIP and say I'm not against them by any means. It just wasn't right for me. And that was the key thing. Yep, totally fair enough. Um, Tim, what about you? Well, snap on the three pensions, Edmund. Um, but my, mine are split slightly differently. So similarly, I've got two um, current and previous workplace pension schemes, which... I would say is where the, the majority of my, my future savings are, um, probably about 90%. Unlike Emma though, I do have about probably 10% in a, in a SIP, um, probably because I'm more of a risk taker than Emma, but I think what I would call out is there's a lot, a lot of research that went in when I was first taking it out. And I would say that they are all investments in area that I've got a general interest in and therefore read and a bit of knowledge. I'd like to think maybe, um, I understand the risk, which is why I've already put 10% in and not 90%. And some years it has been high returns and other years it hasn't, but ultimately that is the, the risks of, of investments. Um, but I think, yeah, for me, it was something that I had an interest in and therefore it gives me the flexibility and it's quite nice to have that power. Um, but it also comes with its risks. 
Yeah, definitely. And I'm quite interested, Tim, do you find you have to spend quite a lot of time managing that zip? How does that all feel for you? This is terrible, given that I work for the financial services compensation scheme. I probably don't spend as much time as I should. So I think when I was setting it up, I spent a lot of time and I'd probably just check in monthly now. But I think for me, it's a, it's a long-term investment. I put it up, hope it's probably about 20 years before I retire. So I've got to, I, don't, I don't feel I need to watch it as avidly, but I probably should. Well, yeah, just something for anyone listening to bear in mind there. Um, no, thanks, Tim. That's really, really interesting to sort of hear both sides of it there from you guys. Um, so, you know, we always say we don't give advice to FSCS because it is outside our remit to do that. But Emma, it would be really useful to talk a bit about what people should consider if they're looking to invest in a SIP themselves. Yeah, definitely, Jess, because there are things that I think everyone should consider with any pension arrangement, in fact, with any savings arrangement, the first thing for you to think about is your goals and your vision for what you want. You know, no one can decide for you what your retirement should look like and what you want out of that. Um, so whether, you know, do you want to go on foreign holidays? Do you want to have a new car every few years? Do you want to treat your grandchildren and your children? You know, all of those things are really personal to you. And for some people, retiring early in a more frugal way is more important or retiring later in a more lavish way. Or, you know, there are literally millions of combinations of things that you can do. But only you can answer that question. And once you know what you want, and it might change over time, right? But once you know what you want, that can then help you decide what products and what sort of mechanism is going to help you achieve that goal. And as I mentioned a couple of times, one of our previous podcasts, I think it was episode three, talks about the different types of products you can get once you get to retirement that then will help you help you with an income. Um, but going back to what Tim and I have just both said about our own pension arrangements, it is really important to have that honest conversation with yourself about your experience in investing. Are you experienced? Have you done it before? Are you really comfortable managing it yourself? Or is that just something that's kind of a, it sounds good at the time, but the practicalities of it are not, are you not something you're comfortable with? Or could you do it, but with a bit of advice? Because as I say, you can, with a, with a lot of SIPs, I don't think it's all of them, but with many SIPs, you can appoint an advisor to to act on your behalf. So you don't have to completely go it alone. But that having that honest conversation with yourself about your abilities and the amount of time you've got to invest um, is really important, I think. Totally agree, Emma, but I think... One thing I'd just like to add on to that really is sort of the fees and the charges, which can vary quite a lot across these various products. So I think it's worth mentioning that there are some very, very low cost options available um, with SIPs, which tend to be sort of completely DIY, you, you're on your own. And I think sort of as Emma alluded to there, there's some higher cost options, which are sort of semi-managed, um, or of course you could use some of the, the very, very good IFAs out there to, to support you in there. One thing I'd sort of focus on, which we've seen sometimes here, is around how the fees change throughout the SIP. So sometimes there's a differing fee between whether you're actively contributing to the to the scheme or whether you're not contributing, and then again whether you're just drawing on that SIP. So just make sure you really understand the, the details around what, what's going on there. And sometimes those costs are just one off, and that might be great and perfect for you. On Emma's point. The difficulty with all of this is it's individual. It's up to you and just, I think, make sure you are getting what you want. Yeah, it's so important. The fees and charges is, is so important because I know I don't work with claims every day, but I see claims that customers bring to us and they can like massively erode <laughs> your, your savings pot if you're not careful and you don't know what you've signed up for. So yeah, super important. 
And I think for me, we'll obviously always bring it back to FSCS, but it is really important to know what protection you're going to have in those products. So if you've got a SIP, would you be eligible for FSCS protection if the provider went went bust? How much would you be eligible for? Are you able to complain to the ombudsman um, about that SIP provider, about that arrangement? And um, to Tim's point earlier, are the investments in it regulated? Are they not regulated? It really is important to understand all of that stuff and and really know if something really did go wrong. Um, you know, are you going to be able to recover recover the money you've invested? Because again, we talked about this on the previous episode, but that eighty five thousand pound limit, it goes quite a long way when you're my age. <laughs> it doesn't go as long away when you are close to retirement. So if you're in your fifties and sixties and you've been lucky enough to build up a big pension pot, that eighty five thousand pounds is not going to go very far. So it's really important to to understand that and know how much you might be exposed to losing if something did go wrong. Um, and as we said, you know, we've repeated it a few times, but just do your research. Um, you can use uh, independent financial advisors. As Tim said, there are, there are many fantastic ones out there, but you can use other places of kind of trusted guidance to help. There's Money Helper, which is um, the new name for the Money and Pension Service, um, who are there to provide government kind of backed free guidance on things. They're not going to be able to provide you super, super personalised advice and we talked about that on a previous episode as well with one of our colleagues from Money Helper um, but they will be able to provide you really good guidance on the options options available to you uh, and there are other kind of consumer bodies like which money saving expert that we all kind of know about and they have great guides to SIPs um, and which as well have some really good reviews of SIP providers from previous customers which is is quite handy to be able to, to see so that whole point of doing your research and spending the time most people listening to this will have tens of years away from retirement, so you can't tell me that you can't find a few hours <laughs> to to do your research into into what you're going to do with your pension. Brilliant. Thanks, guys. So I think we're pretty much um, ready to wrap up the episode now. I feel like we've said the word SIP about a million times, but hopefully we have kind of demystified SIPs and, yeah, just sort of given you a few stories to um, help you decide if a SIP is actually for you or not. So, Tim... You know, I'm going to ask you the question. When you were a child, what was the toy that would have got you breaking open your piggy bank? A really tough question because I was always an avid saver as a child. And as I got older, it tended to involve engines. But I think the first thing I can really remember was a little mini engine and, and saving up for a scare electric set of um, Silverstone, which was Formula One cars. And I think probably was about six months worth of saving um, to, to finally get it. And then it took over the living room for about nine months and never came out again. Oh, Tim, were you really a saver from such a young age? Yeah, I think probably because I want big things. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, well, thank you so much, Emma and Tim. Um, we hope that everyone listening has enjoyed the podcast. Um, you can find all our podcasts on our website, which is www.fscs.org.uk and the usual places you find your other podcasts. We would love to hear what you think, so please do rate and review us. And you can also let us know on our social channels. Just search for at FSCS. Thank you for listening. <laughs>